The history of the world is filled with the story of kings and queens. Some of them were honestly quite good. Others, as we know, were and are horrible. Of course, the history of this country is also intertwined with a king. The colonies revolt against that king and the establishment of a government where there would be no king. Americans often have championed the fact we say we are a people who have no king or no queen. Yet even though we don't have a king or a queen, we seem to be, as a country, often quite intrigued by kings and queens. Americans all often follow things in the UK and, and learn about the king and queen and watch, you know, coronations and weddings. Popular TV shows like The Crown come out, and so many of us watch these. At times we have sort of pseudo-kings in our country, like sometimes a president like John F. Kennedy, his wife Jackie, seemed something like royalty in the culture of that day. Disney has built an incredible empire on kings and queens, princes and princesses. And it seems we both have a skepticism of kings and queens, and also a curiosity, perhaps even a longing, for a good king. Wondering if it's possible that there, there might be a sovereign who would protect and work for the good always of his people. So could it be that we rightly fear the failings of human kings, but also it's a good longing within for a true king, a king who might be for our good, a king who would protect and sustain and guide us? Could there be a king worthy of our complete allegiance? This morning in our passage, we'll see a glimpse of this unique king, this one who is, in fact, worthy of our trust. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, to Matthew 21. Today we'll be in Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. You can find that in the Bibles near you on page 826. Page 826. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you this morning as we work our way through that. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the larger number is the chapter number. So we're in chapter 21. The smaller numbers, the verse numbers, we'll start in verse 1 We'll work our way through verse 17. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we'd love for you this morning to, to pick up a free Bible at the back of the room on your way out. There's a table, a sign that says free Bibles. Please grab one of those, take it with you this morning. Now today we're continuing our series in the Gospel of Matthew, and you'll see in a moment that we're going to be in a text that tells the events that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. And by looking at that, you might be a little bit confused, and you may wonder if I'm confused. You may think, well, we did set our time forward last night. Did we also, like, jump a couple of weeks because it's not Palm Sunday? Why are we doing this on Palm Sunday? So I just want to clarify, I know today's not Palm Sunday. So, so we are working our way through Matthew. So we're going to hit Palm Sunday before Palm Sunday, and we're actually going to hit the cross and resurrection after Easter. And one of the reasons we do that is simply the way kind of time plays out, but also I found for my own soul, often studying together this text apart from a particular day, like studying the birth of Jesus apart from Christmas can actually be helpful to us because we get locked into a routine. We've done it so many times. And so, so hopefully by taking Palm Sunday now, the, the cross and resurrection even later, it'll be helpful to us in that way as well. Just wanted, didn't want you to think that I was confused, that I didn't know what day it is. I know it's not Palm Sunday. And I'm sorry we had to set the clocks back. I commend you for coming on Clock Change Sunday. So let's look. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, 
Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on, put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise, and leaving them? He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. This morning in our passage, we'll see this emphasis. Trust in Jesus, the humble, powerful, restoring king for all the world. Trust in Jesus, the humble, powerful, restoring king for all the world. And we'll look at our passage in two parts. So first we'll see, recognize the promised humble king. And the second, worship the restoring worthy king. So first, recognize the promised humble king. We'll see this in verses 1 through 11. We've seen in recent weeks that Jesus has been making his way towards Jerusalem. And today in our text, we'll see them cover the last few miles and actually enter into the city. And we'll see that Jesus wants to enter Jerusalem at a specific time and in a specific way. He chooses to enter Jerusalem during the celebration of Passover, the most significant holiday of the Jewish year. And for Passover, thousands, tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of Jews would go on a pilgrimage, making their way back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. Jesus joins in this pilgrimage. But he plans to enter in a way that was different from all the other pilgrims of that day. We see that as he drew near, he sent two of his disciples to the village ahead, and we see his instructions in verse 2 and 3. He sent them ahead to get a donkey and a colt. And he gave them instructions on what to say. If anyone asked them why they're doing this, they're to say the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. And things played out just as Jesus had said. So this may have played out this way because of the foreknowledge of Jesus, that Jesus knew what was going to happen, so he instructed them, they're going to ask you, why are you taking this donkey and colt, and here's what you say. 
Or it may have been that this was a prearranged plan. It's possible that Jesus knew this person who owned them, that, that he was a, perhaps a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus had said, there will be a time coming and I will send some of my disciples. And the way you'll know they're my disciples is they'll say to you, the Lord needs them. Whichever it was, it's clear that Jesus was orchestrating these events. He was over these. He was directing them. And as we study this last week of Jesus' life, we want to see again and again that things are not happening to Jesus. Events are not surprising him or overtaking him, but he's the one in charge, initiating, directing, overseeing, and that's what's happening here. So the two disciples, they go and they bring to him this donkey and a colt. Now, during Jesus' life and ministry, he typically did not ride. He walked around the region, which was normal for that day. The majority of people walked places. But here, instead, Jesus would ride. Now, the pilgrims of that day, most of them, even if they did ride, would would walk the last steps in, was a part of the, the nature of their return on this pilgrimage. But here, Jesus, again, is intentionally, purposefully choosing to ride. But what's the significance of this? Why ride, and why in particular ride on a colt? By riding on the colt of a donkey, Jesus was choosing to fulfill a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Quoted here in our passage that had been given over 500 years earlier of this one who would come riding on the foal of a donkey. So here's what Zechariah 9, 9 says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you go back this week and read in Zechariah 9.9, you'll see in 9.9 and 9.10, there's a contrast between this king who would ride on the foal of a donkey and the normal pattern for kings, which was to come in a chariot or on a war horse. So the contrast between these two, and Jesus is showing that he's come to fulfill this Old Testament prophecy. Given generations before, that is what Jesus was now doing. Jesus the King was coming just as God had predicted. A Redeemer, a Deliverer, had been promised all the way back at the beginning. Genesis 3, we have the first hint of this promised one who would come, the Redeemer who would come. And then across the history of God's people, across the Old Testament, we see in in sort of brief hints to more specific direct predictions of this promised Redeemer who was going to come. There's this massive stack of predictions of what this one would be like. And now in Jesus, that was happening Across Jesus' life and ministry, he was again and again fulfilling these predictions. And sometimes, like here, Jesus, who knew the scriptures well, intentionally takes this step to say, that's me. I am fulfilling that. Jesus was entering as the king, the promised king. But no doubt, as a unique king. Riding on a a colt of a donkey was not the, the common way that kings would travel. People did sometimes ride on donkeys, but typically it would be a, a person of peace or a merchant or a priest. If a king rode into town, very often they would ride on a war horse, but not this king. 
riding a donkey also would have been identified with the line of King David. For King David at times also rode a donkey. So Jesus, again, is intentionally connecting himself to the king, the king, the greatest king of the line of Israel, saying, that's what I'm alluding to. That's what I've come from. And friends, we should see that Jesus was now publicly making clear who he was to those who understood, to those who were really paying attention. Author D.A. Carson says it this way, the ride on a colt, because it was planned, could only be an acted parable, a deliberate act of symbolic self-disclosure for those with eyes to see. A deliberate act of symbolic self-disclosure for those with eyes to see. Across Jesus' ministry, we've seen again and again in Matthew, Jesus has limited other people trying to say, this is who he is, or he is that. But now finally, he's saying, I am the one. I am the promised Messiah. And for those who understood, who knew the Old Testament scriptures, they would have put together him, him coming on this full of a donkey. He is saying something by it. He is disclosing himself through this. Now was the time. And here Jesus the king comes, but he comes humbly. He came in meekness. He came in peace. Jesus did not come with a conquering army. He didn't come with any weapons in his hands. In my mind, I imagine the disciples and one of the many conversations they had, and, and Jesus tells his disciples he's going to ride into the city. And his disciples so often misunderstood Jesus, they didn't understand the pace of things or exactly what his kingdom was like. And if I was one of the disciples, I would think, well, okay, finally, he's going to ride in. He's going to show who he is. And so if he rides in, surely he'll ride a big, powerful horse. Now's the moment the kingdom breaks in. And yet Jesus says, no, it won't be a horse. There'll be no war horse. There will be no chariot. Instead, it will be on a humble colt of a donkey. We see verse 7, that as he does this, they put their cloaks on the colt. Jesus sits on it and begins to ride. And as he rides, many in the crowd put their cloaks on the road. Some spread leafy branches as well. In John's gospel, he says of people cutting down palm branches. That's where we get the, the term Palm Sunday, from, from them laying down those leafy branches, palm branches. We see the response of many in the crowd. Look down at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. In this shout, Hosanna, it's a saying that means save or, or save, Lord. And they're repeating this phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. And Jewish people in that day would have understood that that pointed to the Messiah, the promised one in the line of David. So as they're saying this, they're making this connection. Lord, save, and attributing to him this quote intended for the Messiah. But we don't know what the crowd that day truly understood. How many of them grasped his true identity? How many of them were unclear? But whether they knew it or not, these words they were saying were truer and they realized. And we see, friends, this is the appropriate response to Jesus, the saving king. 
In many of our Bibles, likely yours, like mine, there are these headings that we'll have. And above this portion of chapter 21, there's likely a heading that says something like the triumphal entry. And those headings are not in the original manuscripts. Those have been added later. And they actually can be helpful to us, right? When you're looking in a book of the Bible, you're trying to find a certain uh, episode or event, you might find it that way. But when it says the triumphal entry, it seems this is kind of a strange picture of triumph. Seems to be a triumph unlike any other. You know, in the U.S., particularly in New York, we've had ticker tape parades over the years. And often in history, there have been parades of kind of returning, conquering generals. Return from World War and then in this ticker tape parade. And here we see this parade of Jesus, and yet it seems strangely paradoxical. Because this triumphal entry would look even less like a triumph in the days to come in that final week. This final week that would take Jesus to his cross, to his brutal death. And it would look like then that this king had not only wasn't triumphant, but that he had been defeated. Because Jesus had far greater purposes than the masses that day understood, even than what his disciples hoped for and anticipated. For Jesus had not come to bring deliverance from the Roman occupiers. For had he delivered them, there would have been another occupier to come. That that wasn't a high enough mission for Jesus. But he came to bring full and eternal deliverance from Satan, sin, and death. He'd not come to build a kingdom for only one nation, the Jews. He'd come to establish a kingdom for people from all the nations. He'd not come to establish a kingdom by crushing enemies with a sword. In fact, he came to Jerusalem that he himself would be crushed. Crushed on a cross in the place of enemies, rebels, sinners, so that those sinners and rebels stunningly could be forgiven, saved, transformed, brought into God's family as God's own children. Jesus is unique. Now, some recognize the king that unique that day, but certainly not everyone. We see the response of many in the city in verse 10 and 11, where people are saying, who is this? It's a great question. Who is this one on the colt this day? People are shouting, people are throwing down their cloaks. What is going on? We notice one answer that was given by many was they were saying, Jesus, he's the prophet, the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, presumably those who called him that intended that as a generally positive description. He's this unique, holy man. He's a true prophet. And though they may have meant it as a compliment, friends, that's not nearly a high enough description of who Jesus is. Oh, he is a prophet. He's the ultimate prophet. But he's so much more than that. So there's a stir in the city. Who is this? Is he this prophet? Is he a leader of a movement? Could he be more? Could he be the promised king? Could he be the long-awaited Messiah? By his actions, Jesus was seeking to communicate to those who had eyes to see, to those who had ears to hear, that he is the promised one, the promised unique Savior and King. The question was, would the people recognize him and trust him. And the question is the same for us. Will we 
recognize him, and trust him. If you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would give part of your Sunday, and in particular, on Time Change Sunday. So I give you sort of double credit for coming on Time Change Sunday to be with us. And we're so glad that you're here, but, and we hope that you'll see the uniqueness and the humility of Jesus. This king who came not to crush his enemies, but that he would be crushed for his enemies, in the place of his enemies, to save his enemies, that all who would trust in him would be made sons and daughters of God. And for we admit that so often Christians are anything but humble. So often we as Christians fail because we're proud. But please just know that when Christians are marked by pride, we're not following Jesus when we're like that. In fact, we're living contrary to what our unique Savior and King is like. We would love for you to know this unique King. And friends, for those who are Christians, at some point in life, you come to recognize Jesus as your King. And the question we all face in an ongoing day-to-day level is, will we keep trusting him? We have trusted him, but will we trust him today? Will we trust him tomorrow? Will we trust him in the storms, the valleys, that lie ahead for all of us? I hope you'll see that this one that you trust is this humble Savior and King. And here he is again showing us what he told us last week. Remember, last week he said, this is my way, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. To give his life as a ransom for many. Here Jesus again, coming to serve. And friend, do you see that this one who you've recognized as Savior and King is faithful to fulfill his promises? The promises that were predicted across the centuries, fulfilled in Christ. God is faithful. Always faithful to his word, always faithful to his promises. Now, it is true we live in this in-between now. So many promises have been fulfilled, but there are still promises we wait for that have not yet been fulfilled, so we live in between. But we trust him for those promises. We believe that he's faithful, even when circumstances so easily say something else. When our hearts are prone to doubt his faithfulness. So he's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of you continuing to trust him today. So we want to recognize the promised humble king. And if we truly recognize him, it will lead us to second, worship the restoring worthy king. Worship the restoring worthy king. We see this in verses 12 through 17. When Jesus enters Jerusalem, he makes his way to the temple. And this is not surprising, but the temple was at the very center of the life of God's people. And in this pilgrimage, everyone was making their way there. So Jesus does the same. But notice what he does. Look at verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. So there were people in the temple who were doing two things. One, some of them were exchanging money. Now, this was necessary because many of the pilgrims were coming from other regions where they have a different coinage, and they all needed to pay the temple tax, and they had to pay it in the appropriate coinage. So, so it made sense that, that for locals to help exchange the money was a, a fine thing. 
And then many of the pilgrims were coming a long distance. And so if they had the the option of do I carry a pigeon with me or do I carry a goat with me or do I bring money and buy a pigeon in Jerusalem, you can see why it would just be a lot easier. He's going to bring the money, come to Jerusalem, pay for what I'm going to sacrifice. That was fine in of itself, but, but the two challenges were, one, where they were doing this. And this has been happening outside of the temple, completely appropriate. Let's now move this into the temple. And it also seems by Jesus' description, not only was the the location wrong, but how they were doing it. Evidently, people were extorting extra money as well. As Jesus calls them, they've made it a den of robbers. So Jesus has this strong reaction to what was happening here. Jesus is saying, you've taken this area intended for worship, and you've polluted it. This area, likely in the temple court, that was the court of the Gentiles, meaning it was the only part of the temple that non-Jews could come, where they could come and be near to God's presence and to God's people. And it is here that they've turned it into a marketplace. So the one place that's supposed to be access to the outsiders now has become this out-of-control, out of noisy marketplace. And so Jesus says, verse 13, Here's why I'm doing this. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So here Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56, 7, Jeremiah 7, 11. Friends, we see that Jesus was passionate for the right worship of God and that people would have access to worship God. And he's also passionate that all peoples would have access to worship God. Not just Jews, but for the non-Jew, for the Gentile as well, to have access. Because Jesus has always loved the outsiders. His saving work is for all the peoples. So from every nation and tribe and tongue. And so friend, if you consider yourself an outsider, maybe very far from God in your mind, you wonder, is it possible that that God would invite me in. The good news is Jesus came for, especially for, to welcome outsiders like us. So Jesus was cleansing the temple so that people might be able to approach God. But in just a few few days, Jesus was actually going to also make the temple obsolete. For through his death and resurrection, he was going to transform everything. For he would now be the one perfect final high priest. Access would no longer be through a human priest, but through Christ. The role of priest, human priest, disappears in the New Testament. It's no longer necessary because we have Jesus, our great high priest. But you don't come to me to get to God. You got to direct it to the Father through Christ. Animal sacrifices no longer offered. No one ever needed to buy a pigeon or a goat again because Jesus, the Lamb of God, laid down his life for sinners like us. He, the perfect, complete sacrifice. And now the people of God, the church, would be the temple of God. God no longer uniquely dwells in a physical structure in Jerusalem. There's no longer a need to make a pilgrimage there, but now he dwells in us, in the church, corporate And he also uniquely dwells by the Spirit in individual Christians. So so both we are the temple and we are individually the temple of God. Friends, now this church of Jesus is a people from all the nations. 
This is one of the promises that that God has made to us. It's not yet fulfilled, but on the last day, when Christ returns, there will be some from every nation and tribe and tongue worshiping the Lamb. So we love and pray for the Pashtuns. On the last day, friends, we can rest assured there will be some Pashtuns on the last day worshiping Christ. Friends, the good news, we have full access to God now through Christ. And so every Christian and every congregation should have the impulse to pray as Jesus alludes to here. As he says, my people are to be a house of prayer. My people are to be a praying people who understand the access they have so they would pray boldly and often. So we want to be as a church and also as individuals as well. And as Jesus comes into the temple, we see a variety of responses to him. We see verse 14, that some who were blind and lame came to Jesus And he healed them. As we saw last week, desperate people came to Jesus for mercy. And that is what they received. The restoring mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. For you see what a gracious, compassionate, merciful Savior and King that we have. We see another response though, verse 15 and 16. says, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did... And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? So the religious authorities, they see him healing these people who are in need of mercy. And they hear these children shouting Hosanna to the son of David. And they are angered by this. Indignant at what Jesus is doing. And so they say to Jesus, do you hear them? And clearly implied is, aren't you going to do something about that? Aren't you going to make those kids stop shouting Hosanna to the son of David? Let's look at Jesus' response, verse 16. Yes, meaning, yes, I hear them. He says, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. So Jesus says, I hear them. Absolutely, I do hear them, but I'm not going to tell them to be quiet. For they're the ones who truly recognize who Jesus is. They are correct in what they're saying. The sophisticated religious leaders of the culture of that day, they don't get it. They miss it completely. But the humble children do. See that again and again in Matthew. The the childlike faith, trust. Those are the ones who see Jesus. So the right response when we recognize who Jesus is as the humble, saving king is to gladly, wholeheartedly worship him. So we see this variety of responses. Some come to Jesus for help, for mercy. Some come in glad worship of them, and some come indignant at Jesus. For Jesus the king, by his very existence, confronts and demands a response from every person. That includes us. The existence of Jesus requires a response of us. Ultimately, we can't say, I'm simply indifferent towards Jesus. He doesn't give us that option. Face. Will I trust in him as Savior and King, or will I reject him? Say no to his kingdom and to his way. And for maybe if you're honest today, you're skeptical of Jesus, like these indignant religious authorities. I just encourage you to consider, what's the root of your skepticism? Why do you think that way? Perhaps encourage you for the first time or to again consider Jesus. And friend, if you're here today in need of help, 
restoration, healing, mercy. Friend, come to Jesus today. For he always has mercy for every person who needs it. He has grace for you. The restoring power at work in us today. But for those of us who come to see Jesus as our true king, we want to respond in glad worship of him. In that glad worship, we, we treasure him for who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do. So we treasure God's faithfulness in making promises and keeping promises. We treasure the, the faithfulness of Jesus humbling himself to come near. We treasure his work in restoring giving mercy. We treasure his saving work for us. So Christian, rest in and treasure this great salvation that's yours in Christ. Friends, it is unshakable, unbreakable. It is eternal. It's grounded in what he has done, not what you have done or will do. So friends, if you're a Christian, see your king today with eyes of faith and worship him. So our days are marked by rejoicing and praising God. So I, so I commend to you, we're, we'll be helped in our worshiping of God if we regularly reflect upon what God has done in the past. What he's done in history, what he's done in the past in our own lives. For if you're a Christian, remember how God pursued you. People who faithfully shared the good news with you. How you eventually came to a saving faith in Christ. Remember God's faithfulness in small and big ways across the decades, the months in your life. Treasure that, remember that, and let that stir faith even as we wait for what's not yet realized. And then we also worship as we're scattered to the city. So it's not just a one-day practice, but, but we are a worshiping, praising people as we're scattered to the city tomorrow, to the campus and to the workplace, to our neighborhoods, to our homes they're remembering and celebrating what God has done, treasuring his grace for us. And then we do uniquely gather like this on Sundays so that then we're, we're reminding one another of God's grace. So as we hear God's word together and respond, as we pray together, as we read God's word aloud together, as we sing together, there's something happening here that is unique from what we can do individually. So that as we sing, for instance, wholeheartedly, we're singing to God, but we're also singing to one another. We hear the words of God reminding us. We hear the voices of brothers and sisters. And perhaps, friends, maybe today you come and, and the weight of life is so heavy that you can't even sing today. But that's why we have one another. So these brothers and sisters around you sing for you today. And friends, in the months and years ahead, there'll be time when you sing for them. So it's the richness of the life together in this unique time of worshiping as a community in the local church. Friends, we have good news. Jesus, the humble, powerful, restoring king for all the world has come. Let's trust in him. Let's keep trusting him. He is faithful, always faithful.